coming up on Venture Voice. And particularly at the beginning, I remember thinking to myself, oh my goodness, I've been in business two months. That's great. Four months. That's great. I have $15,000 in accounts receivable. How incredible is that? I'm going to make $2,000 on this sale. Just all these little things that were so important to me and gave me confidence to go forward, but also just implied how terrified I was of the whole thing because one misstep in its hope. Welcome to Venture Voice. This is Greg Gallant. And I'm so excited to bring you my interview with Mark Cuban. Mark's not the first billionaire I've met, but he is the first billionaire I bought a drink for. A few years ago, I was at South by Southwest. Turns out Mark and I have a mutual friend. So we met and very quickly, he suggested the group of us go to a dive bar. We head in. Immediately, a couple fans come up and say hi to Mark before he can make it to the bar. So I asked him what he wants to drink. Quickly said Tito's and soda. So I bought him one. But don't worry, he repaid the favor many times over. Now, most people know Mark from Shark Tank, but what really struck me about Mark is how down to earth he is. We started emailing as I talk about in the show. He just emails back within an hour, every time, never forgets an email. And frankly, it makes me feel embarrassed. I'm sure I have a lot fewer people emailing me, and I take a lot longer to get back to people. How does he do it? I was just wondering, how do you stay down to earth despite being a billionaire? I know a lot of people far less successful than Mark that take themselves far more seriously. I listened to a few interviews with Mark to prepare for this. He's not exactly press shy. But what I really want to dig into that I think I get to in a way that I haven't heard elsewhere is how did Mark get successful not with the company that made him a billionaire, but that made him his first million? He really came from scraping things together. So it always just fascinates me. How do you go from being a scrappy entrepreneur to scaling up to your first few million dollars, learning how to manage people? And we get into all of that today with Mark. Also, I should mention that while Mark isn't an investor in my company, we bootstrapped it. He does use our company's software. It's called Muckrack to monitor when he's mentioned in the news, when journalists are talking about him on Twitter, and also to find journalist contact information. Again, this is something that fascinates me about Mark. He's a billionaire. He could afford a large PR team to do everything for him, yet he still does his own PR. He's still paying attention to what journalists say. So I think all of us business owners have a lot to learn from that. Stay tuned for some great time management tips from Mark management tips, and PR tips. I think you're going to have a lot to learn from this episode on how to scale a business, how to reinvest, and how to manage your public relations. On a personal note, this is an extra special episode for me. This is my first new podcast in over a decade. I started this podcast in 2005. You're probably thinking, I didn't even know podcasts exist in 2005. But of course, many people don't know. They're called podcasts named after the iPod. They came out way back then. I got started super early, interviewed a lot of amazing entrepreneurs, and it really set my own career in motion. Interviewing Ev Williams uh, back when he was doing Odeo, a podcasting platform itself, led me to sign up for a little side project that he started when Odeo didn't work, which was called Twitter. I signed up for Twitter so early on that I was able to get my first name on there, simply at Gregory. 
being there in those early days of Twitter led to me and my co-founder, Lee Semmel, starting the Shorty Awards, which have since grown into the largest award show honoring the best of social media. When we saw how much press coverage the Shorty Awards got, we realized there was an opportunity to build a software platform to do PR to help reach journalists with story ideas, monitor the news, and build reports. That's how we came to found Muckrack, which is now used by thousands of companies and just about every top PR firm, and Mark Cuban too. Muckrack and the Shorty Awards now have almost 100 employees and are growing quickly. So I'm always challenged as a CEO to figure out what do I need to do to grow, how do I need to change how I operate, and what's the next challenge ahead. That's why it's great to talk to other entrepreneurs and learn from their experience. So I figured if I'm going to talk to other entrepreneurs for advice, why not record it and share it all with you again? And I couldn't think of a better person to start with than Mark Cuban. I really appreciate him being a bit vulnerable on this podcast, telling me what his challenges were before he was a billionaire, before he was even a millionaire, and how he overcame them, and how he conducts himself even after being successful. I think you're really going to enjoy this. Mark, welcome to Venture Voice. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Great. So I've got a lot to talk about. I know you had a really entrepreneurial childhood, which I want to hear about. But before we even talk about the entrepreneurial part, just tell me, like, what was your childhood like? I know you grew up in Pittsburgh. Just what are your early memories? Yeah, I mean, I was a normal kid, normal family growing up. My dad did upholstery on cars. My mom did odd jobs. I went to public schools, liked sports when I was a kid, moved around a few times. You know, the normal growing up thing. <laughs> you know, nothing stood out, nothing especially unique about it at all. I mean, I stole friends from my elementary school friends. I still have a few. My high school friends are still some of my best friends. My college friends are still some of my best friends. So, you know, just pretty normal. Let's go. What, what do you think it was that drove you... Uh... To kind of become entrepreneurial, like any threads from your childhood were your parents entrepreneurial or did? Yeah, no, my dad, I think, had an entrepreneurial bent. He never really truly was an entrepreneur. He tried a couple of times and it didn't work. I know he always wanted to be, but you know, just the way I grew up, it was, you know, you always had to figure out a way to get something done yourself. You know, it wasn't like my dad made a lot of money, he didn't. And so anything I wanted, I had to find a way to earn it. You know, whether it was selling baseball cards, whether it was selling garbage bags, whether it was buying and selling stamps, whether it was selling candy, there was always my friends used to just laugh at me because I always had some little angle that I was working my own little side hustle that I was always working just to pay for whatever it is I needed. So was it a lemonade stand for you? It was stamps? Yeah, it was definitely not a lemonade stand. I mean, I can remember being 10 years old and, you know, we used to um, trade and flip baseball cards. And so repackaging baseball cards. So there was always a Pittsburgh pirate in the package. And, you know, then going down to the local park and selling them on the picnic table, you know, or by collecting stamps and then going to stamp shows and going from one stamp dealer to the other and say, no, you mislabeled or you misevaluated this stamp, right? It's worth a lot more. It's in better condition than you're saying that it is. And so then I'd go and I remember going one time and spending, you know, 25 or 50 cents and turning it into $25 and thinking, okay, this works and doing it more and more and more. That's cool. And now, and now tell me, you know, fast forward, you go to college and I, I believe you had some entrepreneurial experiences there and then you went into a regular job. So tell me like, what was that transition like from being an entrepreneur in high school and college to... to a regular job, it was awful. <laughs> I mean, the social part of it was great, making new friends and meeting people and 
having a salary for the first time in my life. So I had some stability, but I was an awful employee. I mean, I had a short-term job with Mellon Bank in Pittsburgh. And I remember get, reading an article in this old magazine called Entrepreneur Magazine, and then using the internal mail system, descending, writing a note on it to the CEO of the bank, Mellon Bank of Pittsburgh, saying, I thought you might like this idea. It shows how you could save on social security taxes for the corporation. And here I am, this rookie, fresh out of school. And then I also started the Rookie Club, where I would bring in senior VPs and have them go get a drink with the people who started at the same time I did. And my boss just ripped me a new one. Then by that time, they just, you know, cast me aside and I wasn't there very long. But because I remember walking in the door thinking, okay, my number one job working for this bank is to help them make as much money as possible. And, you know, it's just not the way typically a new employee works in a big company. So it, it didn't quite work out. Wow. And how did it come to an end? Did they, did they fire you? Did you quit? Yeah, I quit. And then I went back to Bloomington for a while, you know, bounced around a little bit, bartended a little bit, and then um, went to Dallas and got a job working at a software store. Uh, before I get to the software store, what was it like bartending? Oh, I mean, I'm a natural, right? I like to drink. I'm good at it. <laughs> and so I can talk and, and communicate with people. And so it was fun. And it was always like at these hot clubs or hot bars. And so, it, you know, it was busy and interesting and fun. Nice. And then that's what got you into the software business, the first job after that. Well, I was working as a bartender at night, trying to get a regular job, quote unquote. <laughs> and I was living six guys in a three bedroom apartment. So I wanted you know, to try to make enough money so I can move out of the rat hole that I was living in and um, got a job working for a company called Your Business Software. And this was back in the day where you'd go through the classified ads of a paper and look for jobs, right? And so um, I circled a job at the software store, but it said for a software store, but I had to go to an employment agency. That's who had the job. And I'm like, look, I can't afford to pay the fee. And they're like, well, we're going to send you anyways. We think we can get them to pay the fee. So I interview and about 20 minutes into the interview, well, the number one thing is you got to tell the um, employment agency that you didn't get the job. That's the only way we can afford to hire you. And so I got the job, at least for a while. I wanted to ask, at one point you sold powdered milk. Was that before or after this job? That was before this job. This was right after Indiana University when I was still in Bloomington and wanted to try to make some extra money. And so I wanted... <laughs> I saw another ad somewhere, I don't remember where, where it was like, hey, milk is too expensive these days. Inflation is driving the price up of milk. You know, you can sell powdered milk and make money. And so I went to this presentation they had and I gave it a try. And, you know, I learned a lot actually in the short period of time that I did it because I was of the impression then, because I couldn't afford anything, that price was the number one thing no matter what. And so this was cheaper than regular milk. So what if it didn't taste very good? It was close enough and, you know, no, nah, that's not the way it works. And so, you know, I learned, you know, in terms of quality of product has to be there before price can even be a consideration. I guess powdered milk is the extreme version of that. I know we, we always deal with that when thinking about how we do our pricing and positioning ourselves. Yeah, because you never know, right? You've got to be able to, you know, offer a service that people really find value in, then you try to price to the value. Whereas, you know, if people don't like the taste of milk, there's no value there. It doesn't matter what the price is because they're not going to put it on their cereal and they're certainly not going to just drink it. Uh, do you still keep a pouch of uh, powdered milk around to remind yourself of that? Or No, no. I, I've never tasted it since. That's been a long time, Craig. Perk of being a billionaire, right? You don't have to worry about going back to yeah, these days, yeah. powdered milk. So jumping around here, let's go back to your business software. So you're at the start of the software business. How'd it go with that company? 
Well, you know, it was interesting because it was really the infancy of the PC and PC software business. And it was great because I couldn't afford to buy a computer. I literally tried to buy one at Radio Shack to get a TRS-80 for your old timers who know the, the history of PC computing. And my credit got turned down. I mean, the only credit card I had for any period of time was Sears because they didn't care if you paid or not. And even they ended up canceling my card at some point. And, and so I couldn't get my own PC. So by working at Your Business Software, I can use the PCs that they had in the store and learn about the computers themselves, but also take the time to understand software. And the interesting thing for me, and I think the best part, you know how you start a new uh, business or you start a new job and you tell yourself all these things, right? You know, here's my attitude going in, or this is what I need to know. And I made the point to myself that nobody knew PC software because it was brand new to everybody. And so it wasn't like I was starting off way behind that I always used to tell people, well, there's the people who wrote the software and there's everybody else. And I was tied for second place with everybody else. And if I outwork the everybody else's, I can learn more about it. And I certainly knew more than the people walking in the store. And so I really just made the point to put in the time to learn the software, something I still do today. And that really gave me an edge because I built up a customer base of people coming in and selling them software because they knew that I would make sure I understood the software and understood it to the point where I could explain it to them because everybody was a neophyte when it came to PCs and software. That's interesting. I think a lot of people, I mean, I know you pride yourself on being a great salesman. And I think what a lot of people think about great salesmen, they just think of someone who's going to make you feel great and take you out to dinner. What is the secret to being good at sales? No, the secret to me, I mean, look, the, the person who can sell ice to Eskimos, that type of thing. Yeah, that to me, those aren't great salespeople at all. The best salespeople are the ones that really put themselves in the shoes of their potential customer and get to understand what they're trying to accomplish, what's important to them, what reduces their stress, and then finds ways to make it happen and then stays with them because then as and now, your best referral points are people who love your product and love the work that you do. And you know, so I really invested a lot of time. And the good news was, turns out I loved it. I really didn't have a tech background. It's not like now where kids today are growing up with technology. It was all relatively new, but you know, I would find myself sitting down to read a manual, the IUS software manual, right? Or Peachtree accounting manual, this stuff from the Wayback Machine. And four or five, six hours later, I would pop up thinking I'd only been doing it an hour. You know, and then I started to teach myself how to program in basic and, you know, even some assembly language and database and scripting languages and DOS and this and that. And, you know, you start sitting there with a project in mind that you were doing for a customer. And I mean, I gained about 30 pounds because I would sit there literally with a basket of ribs and just be eating, wiping, typing, typing, wiping, eating, you know, and but time would just go by and I'd be there 18, 20, 24 hours and not realize how long I'd been sitting there. And, you know, that really just the fact that I took to it like that really was a huge advantage for me. Sounds like you were an A-plus employee. Why aren't you still working there? What went wrong? Well, yeah, great question, right? Fortunately, I'm not. So one day, I remember I'm still living in the shithole. There's six of us living in the three-bedroom apartment in the village in Dallas. And so anybody who knows Dallas has heard of the village apartment complex. It's one of the largest in the world. And didn't have a bedroom, didn't have a bed, didn't have a closet, didn't have a drawer. I mean, my stuff was in a pile on the floor. And so I had a chance to close what would have been my biggest deal in a $1,500 commission, which was huge for me because that would have been enough to put a deposit on a new place and actually you know, move out at some point. And so I went to tell my boss and basically he said, and told him I needed to go pick up the check because 
the deal is not closed until you got the cash in hand, right? Until you had signed on the line that is dotted. He said, no, you know, I need you to be in the store. And I'm like, I've got everything covered. The woman's name was Barbara Depew. I'll never forget, you know, great lady. And she actually came to work with me at my company later on. And she's like, no. And I made the executive decision to go pick up the check. And when I got back, he fired me. First of all, what'd that feel like? Because it sounds like you've been in a, an achiever your whole life. Like, what was that like? I don't remember, to be honest. I think it was just the way it is. But what I do remember, myself and my buddies, Greg Shipper and Scott Susans, decided to take off and go down to Galveston. <laughs> and the whole time between beers, I literally, I still have all of them. I have a notepad. Where I was like, it's time. I'm a lousy employee. I didn't like working here. Didn't like working there. Don't want to work at a bartender for my career. And so I started writing up all my notes. You know, what do I want to do? Well, I come up with microcomputer solutions. What's the name of a company that conveys microcomputer solutions? Micro solutions. What a great name. You know, the goal of our company is to make your company more productive, more profitable, and give you a competitive advantage. And I just worked backwards from there. And then at that point, it didn't mean I had a company. You know, I just had a vision and I just had to go out and scramble from there. I mean, I was scared to answer your question. What did it feel like? Because I was still sleeping on the floor. And how old were you? I was 24, 24, sleeping on the floor and I had no source of income at all. Didn't want to go back bartending. And so I had to hustle right off the bat. And so I went to one of my customers, one of my leads from Your Business Software, a company called Architectural Lighting. And I explained the whole situation. I was just brutally honest. And I said, look, you had come in to get this software. It was a time and billing software for their company. And I said, look, I don't have the money to buy the software, but if you'll front me the $500 and I knew it cost $200 to buy, then I'll make sure that it works for you. I'll install it and treat you like the God and goddesses that you are for saving me. And if it doesn't work, I'll walk your dog. I'll clean the gum out of the carpet. I don't care. And fortunately, they gave it to me and it worked. And so that $300 let me live for a couple of weeks until I got my next customer, which got me my next customer, which got me my next customer. And then eight years later, we sold it for $6 million. And so you started this company, I believe, were you 27 then when you started it? No, no, I was 24. Oh, so you started the company like right after you got fired. Right there. I got fired and I had no place to go. So it was like, okay, micro solutions, that's the gig and let's go. Wow. And so how big did you scale it in terms of uh, headcount and revenue? Yeah. So we got up to 80 people and we were doing about $3 million a month. So 30 some million dollars a year. And we were profitable. What I was most proud of was we were profitable every single month of our existence because I had to be. I had no investors. I had nothing behind it. I would always look for investors thinking that was the way and fortunately, I didn't find any because I got to, you know, keep most of it. I did bring in a partner, but I got to keep, you know, most of it when we sold. That's heartening to hear. It's the same way we've grown uh, Muckrack, just all, all yeah. off revenue and it really keeps you focused. That's exactly right. What was it like every, uh, just as you were scaling? Because, you know, it's one thing to just be someone who can code and sell. Like you sound like an awesome founder, but what was it like switching from being a founder to a CEO and having to manage people? That's a huge change, right? And so I knew what I was good at. I'm a ready, fire, aim guy. And I knew what I'm bad at. I'm not anal. I'm not detail-oriented at all. So I tried to surround myself with people who are really detail-oriented because I would push us, you know, here's where I want the company to go. You know, our thing was I would learn all the new technologies. Like I said, there was a person who created it and there was everybody else. And my attitude was if I outworked the everybody else's, I could lead in terms of technology. You know, it turns out that I really had 
away with technology. I felt very confident and comfortable with it. Push, but I would hire people behind me to do all the detail work. And so I would sell it, write the code where I needed to write code. But then I started bringing in other coders, trainers, more salespeople, more technical people. We just started building this real company. But every step of the way, it was still terrifying. You don't know. I didn't have any experience at anything. And I really didn't have mentors that I could turn to. And I didn't really look for mentors. I really enjoyed trying to figure it out as I went. You know, and along the way, there were screaming matches. Like when I took in Martin as our partner, you know, he was the anal guy that did all the accounting and the books. And I used to call him the revenue avoidance department, you know, because he'd want everything perfect. And I'd be like, let's go, let's go, let's go. And we'd yell and scream at each other. But that, you know, when you're 24, 25, 26, that's what happens. And I would put everything back into the company, and but it grew and, and it worked out. That's cool. And so you ran it for eight years from yeah. 24 to 32, basically? No, no, no. I take that back. No, we started in 83 and sold it in 90. So it would have been seven years. Okay, cool. And then as it got bigger, like how do you deal with bringing in managers and just setting up that whole structure? Yeah, that's the hard part, right? And so, you know, my first employee was Scott Susan's who was just somebody I trusted. And I'm like, I told him, just Scott, you know, you don't understand this. I'm just learning it, but no one else understands it. And you're working as a waiter in a steakhouse. Is that what you want to do the rest of your life? And so, you know, we'd go out there, I'd install the computer. He learned how to install the printers and then he learned how to install the computers. And so over time, you know, he became head of the service side, you know, and then, you know, as I hired a few salespeople, I was a sales manager. And then I hired somebody when we got to 10 or 12, whatever salespeople, Then I hired somebody and trained them. And, you know, I really tried to hire people that I could develop with bench strength or hire people that had specific expertise that could bring value to the company immediately. So when we wanted to sell the law firms, I hired somebody that had already sold the law firms. When we wanted to sell the Fortune 500, I hired somebody from another computer store that did just that, you know, paid them a little bit more commission, but told them that we offer services that these other retailers or big companies couldn't offer and, and they would make more money and just grew it that way. And if we were able to go back in time and ask one of your employees back then, what's your CEO, Mark, like? How do you think they would have described you? Loud, boisterous, pushy, mean sometimes, driven, but nice. I'm still friends with a lot of them. And and I guess the true tale of the tape is in those seven years, in 80 employees, we had one person leave and that person came back. That's what I was be proud of. Yeah. And now, so that was pretty much your late 20s. What was your lifestyle like? Were you taking money out of the business and living well? Was it? Yeah, we were taking, I mean, I did increase my salary. I was able to buy a a used 1982 Mazda RX-7, which I was really excited about. And then Martin, who I brought as a partner, bought a Cadillac. And so he got a Cadillac. So I, he got a deal. So I had to get a Cadillac and just leased it, right? Didn't buy it because that made us big time then. But no, I mean, like the first house I bought, I bought on a rent to own type deal. And then I bought a switch to a little bit nicer house. But again, nothing extraordinary or extravagant. So yeah, I just wasn't a stuff guy. You know, I didn't really buy anything crazy at all and managed to save a little bit of money as we got closer to selling. When I was uh, researching for this, I'd come across that you'd read a book called How to Retire at Age 35. Yep. And it kind of reminds me of like today, do you know the whole fire movement, financial independence, retire early people? Well, they, that's the same thing, yeah. Yeah, all, all these people now who are like engineers, they save money, they retire at 30 and live off ramen. Yep. So yep. it sounds like you were the first one. That's exactly right, man. Live like a student. Live like a student. You know, if I could save $100,000, interest rates were a lot higher then, right? So 
if I could save $100,000 and live off of whatever it was, right? $100,000, 10 interest rate. So $100,000 went $10,000 a year, right? So if I could get up to $250,000, then I'd have $25,000. Could I live off of that? Yeah, back then I thought I could live off of it. And that was my orientation, save up enough so I could retire and live like a student. But what I find fascinating is like, what drove that psychology? Because you seem like someone who loves to work, loves to build things. So why do you care about retiring? Just because the way I was raised, you know, my dad really didn't have his own time to himself, right? Every morning, you know, he was at work or leaving for work at 7 a.m., six days a week. You know, he got home at noon or one on Saturdays, and that was half a day off. We loved to take vacations, but, you know, he was always at the beck and call of somebody else. And he would always instill in me, you know, the most valuable asset you can ever possibly have is time. And he always liked to say, you know, today's the youngest you'll ever be, live like it. And to me, just being able to just own my own time, like until I got an iWatch, I hadn't worn a watch in 30 years. The day I sold Micro Solutions, I took off my watch and said I'd never wear a watch again because that signified I have to be somewhere and pay attention to time that other people set for me right? And to be on someone else's schedule. And so never wore a watch again until I got an iWatch. And that's why, you know, I just want to be able to do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I wanted to do it. And I got really good at it. (laughs) And while you were running micro solutions, a lot of people think, hey, I'm going to start my own business. I'm the boss. I don't have to listen to anybody. Did you feel like you were in control of your time and your life when you were running micro solutions? Or did you feel like, you know, the company or your customers were kind of in control of you? Well, of course, your customers run your life, right? You don't own your life, your customers do. Or, you know, the fear of not having customers. So yeah, I mean, I felt as an entrepreneur that I had some level of control. But at the same time, you know, because it was my company, and I got to make the decisions. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, particularly as you're growing and scaling, and, you know, at various points in time, you have too much of a dependency on any one customer, right? And so that terror sets in that what happens if you lose that customer? And it's inevitable that at some point you will lose an important customer and and you will go through that terror. And particularly at the beginning, I remember thinking to myself, oh my goodness, I've been in business two months. That's great. Four months. That's great. I have $15,000 in accounts receivable. How incredible is that? I'm going to make $2,000 on this sale. Just all these little things that were so important to me and gave me confidence to go forward, but also just implied how terrified I was of the whole thing because one misstep and it's over. What led to the decision to sell? And and did you decide I want to sell this company or did they come to you? We got interest and I was always looking to, again, time was my goal. And so if I was able to sell it for a decent amount of money, and remember the goal was retired by the time I was 35 and this was going to allow me to do it. I mean, we started talking about it when I was 29 and hit it like when I was 30, you know, right around there. I mean, why wouldn't I? And the first thing I did was buy a lifetime pass on American Airlines and party like a rock star. And so it was just to me back then, I was rich in in unique ways and, you know, able to control my own time and do whatever I wanted, party as hard as I wanted, travel wherever I want. I wanted to pick up and go to Russia. I did. I wanted to pick up and go to the Olympics. I did. I wanted to, you know, go just hang out with friends somewhere, anywhere. I did. Got a place on Manhattan Beach, started taking acting classes. I mean, it was incredible. That's got to be an amazing shift. Oh, it was it was great. Now, it didn't mean I wasn't still an entrepreneur. I still worked on projects. But, you know, there's a big difference between investing. And, you know, the interesting thing was, Greg, back then in the 90s, because I was so ingrained in computer technology, that was right when computer stocks just really, early 90s, right back when computer stocks just started taking off. 
networking just started taking off and all those companies were going public. So I knew them better than people in the stock market. And so I got a stockbroker and I told him initially, I wanted to invest like a 60 year old man, right? Like a widow and orphan, just, you know, things that are very conservative because, you know, this is my nest egg. And slowly but surely, you know, there were these analysts, Rick Sherlin from Goldman Sachs, Lee Ainsley, who was an investor, all these guys that were asking me questions and making money. And I'm like, wait, you know, he's like, Mark, you've got to buy and sell these stocks, right? Because you know them better than anybody. And so I took that money and I started trading and started killing it, killing it. So every day, you know, I'm making 30, 40, $50,000 a day. And year after year after year, I'm making 80, 90, 100% for multiple years in a row. It got to the point where my broker put together a thing where we were going to create a hedge fund. And before we even raised money, because this group came and said, we want to use your track record and your name and your advice, and we'll give you all this money just to be able to do that. I didn't even have to do the work and start the hedge fund. I got bought out immediately. And so that gave me the opportunity to party even harder. <laughs> <laughs> just to back up, though, I want to hear what it's like to sell a company for the first time, like when you had Microsolutions. I remember when it happened. I mean, it was a process. It, we sold it to CompuServe, part of H&R Block. And it was because a consultant, Jim something, I'm so sad I forgot his name, older guy came to me. And I'll never forget going to Columbus, Ohio, where CompuServe was located. And we're in the airport. And even then, you know, just to travel to CompuServe, because those of us who remember social media from the 80s and 90s, you know, CompuServe and Prodigy and AOL were the big social media companies. My Prodigy username was XMVTT6B when I was growing up. Still remember it. There you go. My CompuServe was like 71625,2003 or something ridiculous like that, right? They couldn't use real names. And I had Prodigy ID and AOL IDs, a whole nine yards. Going to CompuServe was just such a thrill. And I remember being in the airport and I had a suit on, a real suit, not my two for $99 suits. And Jim was walking there. There was a hair hanging down on his suit. And I went to grab it, not thinking. And his whole hair was unwound. He had like huh. the world's most <laughs> Donald Trump advanced hang, uh, comb over. And I'm like, oh, my God, I just ruined things for myself. And he fortunately, he laughed it off. CompuServe bought us. They didn't really need me. They wanted to go in their own direction. And they paid me to basically just advise them for 12 months, which let me go to L.A. and have fun and do the trading that I talked about. But in terms of the feeling, when it closed and we got that check, I was like, this isn't real. I don't know what, didn't know what to do with myself immediately, but I found a way to go to this big old steakhouse with my friends. And I bought a house at that time. I wasn't a car guy. So there really wasn't anything I was like, it wasn't like, okay, I'm selling my company. I need to buy A, B, or C. But I traveled so much on American Airlines back then, 1-800-433-6464. I mean, that's how often I called the number that I wanted to know if I could buy a lifetime pass on American Airlines. Because to me, the freedom, as I told you, you know, owning my time and being able to go where I wanted, when I wanted, how I wanted. So I could barely speak. I was so trashed. It was one of these old school steakhouses. And we're just pounding drink. My friends are just getting me as drunk as they possibly can. Because that was that's what friends do right back then when you're, you know, 29, 30 years old. And we happen to be this old school steakhouses. And back then, you know, some of the old school ones would have places where you could plug in a phone. And so I asked for a phone. They're like, what are you going to do? And so I called American Airlines, stumbling, barely able to speak. And I'm like, do you guys sell lifetime passes? And they connected me to the AirPass department. And I'm like, you do? And they're like, yes, sir. We'll send you an application. 
And being hung over the next day, I called again to confirm it. And I bought a lifetime pass on American Airlines for the first one was $125,000, which gave me $25,000, I think, miles a year for me to go wherever I wanted with anybody. Then I upped it to 125,000 miles a year for the rest of my life. And I calculated and did the math so that it was 12 cents a mile, which then as an even more so now was a great deal. And I know the next question is, where is it now? And I've given it to my dad after I bought a plane. And then when he died, I gave it to a guy who works for me, Jason Luton, who's using it today as we speak, he told me. So it's still in use 30 years later. Oh, that's amazing. So it's not going to waste. That really is a lifetime. Not going at all. That's wonderful. Let's go back to that sale. How much did you sell the company for? $6 million. How'd you negotiate that with them? What's it like negotiating against you know, what at the time was a monster company? You know, I think Guy Jim, I think, did most of the negotiation and I just did a lot of head shaking because once it got past $5 million, I was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I was ready to go. What was your bank, if you're okay sharing it, like what was your net worth prior to the sale? Like what did your bank balance look like? Probably a couple hundred thousand dollars at that point. Cool. And then you sold for $6 billion. What are you worth after, you know, once you're done paying your taxes? After taxes and everything, probably $2 million. What was it like when you woke up hungover after that steakhouse it, night? It was weird, right? Because I don't remember all of it, but it was just like, okay, am I rich? Okay, I'm the richest person I know. <laughs> <laughs> And it's like, what comes next? And so, because I had sold the company, it didn't mean I wasn't working, right? And so I probably was a little bit too arrogant for my own good at that point in time for a while. You know, hey, I just sold my company and I'm the young guy still. Because at that point in time, everywhere I went, everything I did, I was the youngest, always, always. I mean, by decades in everything that I did. So I had to have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder just to be able to fight through it. And But yeah, I was probably a little bit overly arrogant, but it felt good. And I remember just being really, really relieved and happy. And, you know, we took a big chunk of that $6 million and gave it to employees as well. So I was happy about that. That's wonderful. Did you throw the watch out immediately? Did immediately. It... Wow. Bam. Gone. And literally like in the trash. It's not in the drawer somewhere. No, I still have it because my dad had given it to me. But yeah, but it was gone. And I haven't worn just like a fashion watch or real watch other than my, if my iWatch ever lost its eye features, internet features, I'd take it off. Wow. Well, kudos to Tim Cook for getting you to put a watch exactly, back on. Exactly, right? Yeah, that's a good uh, post-Steve Jobs Apple accomplishment right there. And now you were saying you're, you're killing it as a trader. I want to get up, of course, to uh, AudioNet and, and Broadcast.com. But you just tell me, how did your net worth go after that? I mean, up until like late 94 to 95, I was probably at near $20 million. Yeah, so it grew considerably. I did really, really, really well. And that gave me the money to take a flyer when we started AudioNet. Was there a difference in how you felt about yourself for your secu- financial security between the $2 million and the $20 million? Oh, yeah, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I could take chances. I, I wasn't as stressed about anything. And yeah, it was. It, it felt completely different. Like, what, what was the turning point? Was it like when you hit five, when you hit 10? I never really looked at it that way because I didn't really look to make changes in my lifestyle. I didn't have enough money to make huge changes in my lifestyle. I still had my house. My house was getting paid off. My student loans were at that point definitely paid off. And I had the same car for years and I wasn't you know, a collector really of anything. And so I just saved money. Yeah. Well, you weren't waste blowing the money on fancy watches. No, that's exactly <laughs> right. 
How did the whole audio net, which later became broadcast, how'd that opportunity come to you? So my buddy from Indiana, Todd Wagner and I used to get together all the time just to shoot the shit. And, you know, one day we were having lunch at California Pizza Kitchen in Dallas. And he's like, look, you know, what do you think about this idea of using the internet to listen to sports? You know, we could listen to Indiana University basketball over the internet instead of you know, putting up a speakerphone next to a radio in Bloomington, Indiana, and then calling down here and listening to it on the other end with a six pack of beer. And I'm like, okay, I know networking. That's a really good way to look at using the internet. Because I mean, I'm like everybody else, I'm just learning about the internet and trying to figure it out and trying to see what's there and what's not there. And I downloaded, you know, all the different browsers and Mosaic and Netscape, like everybody else, and set up a little web server just to learn. And I'm like, let me see if we can do this. And so I started messing with it, bought a PC, bought a Packer Bell computer, put in the second bedroom of my house just for this and just started messing with it. And I'm like, okay, you know, there's ways that we can encode this into WAV files and then you can do progressive downloads and stuff like that. And so we can give it a try. And, you know, that's what we did. We went to a local radio station and I have it back here somewhere, but great. this thing right? These are two VHS tapes, two VHS tapes from the very first radio station, KLIF Radio. What we would do is we would take an old eight-hour VHS and we would go to the board of a radio station, kind of a setup like you're sitting at right now. We take the output of the audio analog, right? And use that as the input into the component audio jacks in a VCR and record it onto a VCR for eight hours. Then after the eight-hour recording was over, I'd go down and I'd pick up the videotape bring it back to my house, take the play the VHS tape, which just played the audio, right? And then record it onto a WAV file onto the hard drive on a server that I set up in my house. And then would just go around to all these message boards and UUNet forums and CompuServe and say, look, if you're interested in Dallas sports and you're interested in Dallas news and information, download these TCP IP clients and connect to this website. And you can listen right here on AudioNet. And we started doing just that. Yeah, it's just crazy. August 10th, just unbelievable. And then a company called Zing, X-I-N-G, came out with some, not streaming, but better progressive downloading software than what we were doing. And then Real Networks, Progressive Networks came out with their version. And we just started locking up content from radio stations like this and hundreds of radio stations, hundreds of sports teams and leagues and universities and conferences. And slowly but surely, we just built a juggernaut when it came to audio and then video streaming. I mean, we just dominated, dominated. First, we went public in July of 1998. It was the biggest IPO in the history of the stock market at the time. And that was fun. And then almost two years later, we closed the deal on the sale to Yahoo for $5.7 billion in stock. Now, just a quick break from the podcast. When I was relaunching the show, I figured I wouldn't have any sponsors. I have two businesses of my own, Muckrack and the Shorty Awards, that I'm out to promote uh, whenever I can. So um, who needs it? But then one of my early listeners reached out to me, who's since gone on to co-found this very successful company called Steady MD. And guess what? What you're hearing right now is the sponsorship that he, uh, he asked if he could make. But I was intrigued by the model. If you're anything like me, now's a weird time to be thinking about going in person to the doctor, unless you absolutely have to. So they've developed telehealth, telehealth done right, 
and they have a quiz you can take where they'll match you with the right doctor. You put in your interests, like I put in that I'm a cyclist and I could find doctors that are also cyclists on there so they can kind of get you on a certain level. People who are into CrossFit can find a doctor who gets CrossFit, et cetera. You get a one-hour appointment with your doctor and the idea is you start a real relationship with them. It's almost like Tinder for finding the right doctor, although I don't know if they'd uh, want me to use that analogy. But it sounded pretty cool. You can check it out, steadymd.com slash VentureVoice. Uh, don't forget the whole URL and let them know that we sent you, steadymd.com forward slash VentureVoice. It's important that we all stay healthy in times like these, and having a regular relationship with a doctor really helps with that. Once you have that doctor, they're available to you anytime by text, phone, or video call. It's like a podcast for your health. So again, steadymd.com slash VentureVoice. Now back to the show. A lot of people say second-time entrepreneurs, they have the advantage of the experience and the money, but they're kind of, you know, they have this disadvantage because now they're living a cushy lifestyle and they don't want to work right. 100 hours a week. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And that's absolutely true because when we started, I was just going to be an advisor. And then I was going to be a vice president. And Todd and, you know, this other guy he was working with, we're going to do all the work. But then it just blew up. And I love the technology. And so, you know, being able to do this stuff in my house and then being able to explain what this new thing is and, you know, put in my head that I'm going to be the next Ted Turner. You know, and this is the next cable television and we're going to take over all of media bits or bits. And when everything goes digital, we're going to control all the delivery and presentation and creation of every bit on the planet. You know, it was exciting. And we just started growing so quickly that it absorbed, it just consumed us. I never gave it a second thought. It was just go, 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 go right from the beginning. And I remember telling people here, I'll show you another picture. So this was our first office at 2929 Elm Street. And it was just a little place that after I did sell micro solutions and I was making that money, I bought this little building, which was in the deep Ellum part of Dallas, which at that point in time was kind of the party scene at the part of Dallas. Inside of it, I was going to build a little basketball court on one side. And up here where these guys are was just a place where I could just hang out with my friends. And we had beer taps and we just had picnic tables and everything. And we could just sit there at night and watch the whole scene where all the people were partying and I could go party and have a place to crash. And then boom, AudioNet started to click. So the fun thing about this was, this is where I gave the speech, where I said, literally, if we do this right, this company is gonna be worth $5 billion. And if we don't do it right, we'll just be friends. But I truly believe we have a chance to change the media game in ways people cannot even imagine. And you know that's effectively what we did. And as you're stuffing back into this fire, were you were you worried at any point you're going to have to put a watch back on, you know, just the demands of being a CEO are going to take over your really nice life? No, no. At this particular point, we were going so fast, we didn't have the chance to think like that. You know, it wasn't that there weren't struggles or challenges because in micro solutions, I made money every single month. And when we started, that was the goal. We were going to be able to, you know, we'd be able to send music into corporate environments, or we were going to go to Amazon and say, look, if you put music while people are buying, you'll sell more and we'll create the data to show you that, right? And just things that in hindsight now sound crazy, but we had so much consumer demand, despite the fact that you really, it was really a hassle, you know, to download all these clients to make it work and, you know, 
unless you had some sophistication with technology, you weren't going to be able to figure it out and all that. But despite all that, we just exploded. I mean, not only did the demand come from consumers, but it came from sources of content who wanted to get their content seen. We literally helped this before a lot of the um, copyright laws changed in the mid 90s. But we would have this thing called the CD jukebox, where we were literally able to take CDs off the shelf and code them and make them available to anybody to listen. And I'll never forget Matchbox 20, the band came to us and wanted to release one of their CDs on it and break a single because they thought they'd get more listeners than they could on traditional radio and they might not get picked up. And we broke that their first album and it just crushed it, crushed it. So we thought we were on top of the world, but we took the, the approach of growth first over sales, which was completely foreign to me. And that's where the stress came from because I'm a sales guy and a tech guy, and I wanted to create revenue right off the bat. And so while initially we focused on adding content, we quickly evolved to the point that content became a proof of concept for scale, but we made our money from doing corporate events. Because up until that time, if Motorola wanted to do a presentation to all their employees, they would go um, and rent satellite time and then find movie theaters that had satellites on top. And then they'd go do broadcast to all these movie theaters. And that's how they reached their employees around the country and around the world. And we were a much more cost-effective option to that. So we literally played cub games in the afternoon because we would get tens of thousands of simultaneous listeners so that we could prove to Motorola that we could handle them doing an audio-only broadcast to all their employees. And then same thing when we got to video. So that was nerve-wracking because you also had the execution challenges. And if we didn't work, we had no business. And so how do you fund it then? Because it sounds like me. Me initially, which is good because that's how I ended up owning enough percentage of it to make as much money as I did. But then we started raising money the first round. How, how much did you invest before the first round? A couple million dollars, I think. But I remember the first check was 75000 the next check was seventy five, and then the next check was 250 And then I kept on because I don't want to write one big check, right? It was just like, it was less painful writing yeah. smaller checks. You know how that goes, right? I, I've been there many times. Yeah. And so it's just, even though you know what the total amount is going to end up being, it's just less painful when you write them as small checks. <laughs> <laughs> it's stupid, but true. And still to this day, I do the same dumbass thing. You know, so I kept on funding it. And then we had friends who wanted to invest. And that's really why we brought in the first investors, because it was like, okay. And I literally remember thinking, you know, what should we value this at? And we valued it at $3 million because that was the first valuation for micro solutions when we first started looking at selling the company. So I just, just like pull it out of the air. And so we got 10 buddies then to each put up $30,000. And so they bought 10% of the company. And each one of those stakes ended up being worth $22 million when we sold that $30,000. And then the next time, one of the guys we brought in had a fund and he pushed to put money in. And then we ended up getting some big investors in Intel and SoftBank and others. What was it like for you dealing with investors? Because that it sounds like that was the first time in your life that you had to deal with professional investors. Yeah. Once again, I had somebody who was anal and smart and Todd Wagner as my partner that I had to hire against my skill set, right? Things that I couldn't do. And Todd was a lawyer by training and profession. And so he was great at it. He's just a phenomenal negotiator, super incredibly smart, you know, a lot smarter than me and just able to do that part of it. And where, you know, me, the sales guy, I would have said yes to anything. He knew how to do it the right way. And how do you think you went about being successful in those relationships? Because I know 
So many people co-found a company, they're different than each other, which is great, but then they don't find a way to resolve the differences. The, the sales guy thinks the other person's too conservative or vice versa. Yeah, I think in both cases, I was the vision, right? And so they had to buy into my vision of where we were taking this. And because I, in both cases, I was really the technical guy when it was all said and done, they couldn't really challenge that at all. It wasn't like, you know, let's not use Windows, let's use this, or let's not use this networking approach, let's use whatever it may be. And so because of that, I think that allowed Todd to respect my judgment. And Todd also knew that unless he did what he needed to do, we weren't going to survive. And so, you know, he knew he was just as important as I was. And so and myself runs a PR software company. Uh, You know, I want to hear like, what was your PR strategy in getting the word out about uh, broadcast.com? It was a grinded out strategy, literally starting as AudioNet, I would go to every, every bulletin board, UUNet board, CompuServe Prodigy AOL board and say, hey, if you're interested in fill in the blank radio station, city, town, team, band, act, sport, you know, whatever, then come to AudioNet because we talked about making the world small. And that's exactly what we did. I remember one time for KLIF radio, the radio I showed you the videotapes from, once we were able to start streaming live, they got a call from the Aleutian Islands. Somebody in the Aleutian Islands was listening to the audio net stream of that radio station and they were freaked out. And that really you know, sent the message strong that, okay, this is a different game and we really have something unique here and we've just got to push and go. And so let me go back to the PR strategy. And so as that evolved, it went from, okay, getting end users by going to where the end users are to going to all the media properties that I could find. So, you know, this is back when things were still, you know, there were trade publications, computer reseller news. I knew those people there because I had actually written a column for them about computer reselling after I sold my systems integrator, Microsolutions. So I started there and they referred me to other people, referred me to other people. And then, you know, because we were dealing with media, you know, I could get on news programs. And because I was young enough still, you know, people are like, well, what's this guy? What's going on here? And what's this internet thing? And what do you mean you're going to replace television? You idiot. There's no way you're replacing television, you know, and all these different things. So getting earned media was really, really, really easy. You know, you can't see all the articles that I still have up and around from <laughs> back in those days. And so you didn't have muckrack back then. How do you find the journalists? No, I wish we did. Yeah, I wish we did. I mean, I used to have my own little tickler files, you know, and search things and get online and have to do searches for everything. What do you learn about working with journalists? Um, They need content. You know, the number one job of a journalist is to fill time or space in one manner or another. Their goal is to stand out in a way that makes them look good. If you give them an angle or an article that makes them look smart, they're going to keep on going back to you as often as they possibly can. And that holds true today. It's so competitive in media, more so obviously than when we were going 25 years ago or 20 years ago. But the same holds true today. The the more competitive the media landscape is, the higher the need for quality stories. And if you're able to deliver, then they're going to listen. And I tell all my Shark Tank companies and all my portfolio companies the same thing. Some of the best time that you can spend is getting to learn people in your, know people in your industry or the people that cover your industry people that write about your industry, the people that are influencers about your industry and talk to them, right? Because they're looking for ways to succeed. And if you help them succeed, they'll help you succeed. And how much time did you spend when you were CEO uh, doing the PR, dealing with journalists? I mean, a lot. I mean, every minute of every day was spent on this company. Even if it was 10 o'clock at night and I'm sitting there with a laptop watching you know, a game, 
um, emailing anybody that I could. And anytime there was an article, even tangentially connected to the streaming industry, I'm connecting to that person and saying, hey, you know, if you have any questions, if you want some insights on what's going on. And because we were, you know, 5x the size of anybody else, I knew all the data, you know, that really drove the industry. So they always had a need to talk to me. So I know a lot of entrepreneurs get dejected when they read an article about their industry that doesn't mention them. But you would just cold email that journalist and say, oh, hell yes, every time. Or if they said something, you know, oh, my God, was it? There is this show. I can't believe I'm spacing it. But it was about this streaming company that was 100% fraudulent, 100% fraudulent. And I knew it was fraudulent when it happened, just like I knew when Enron got into the bandwidth business. I was like, this shit ain't going to work. Right. And so I'd see these articles talking up this other company because the guy was a smooth talker, but had no idea what he was talking about. And so I would always take the counter to all that. And that, you know, if I needed to bring some reality into a circumstance, because again, the author, the reporter never wants to look back. No reporter wants to be embarrassed. And so I always knew that I had that opportunity if the information was wrong. That's great. I see so many people get it wrong. They try to yell at the journalists for forgetting them. No, you can't. It's just like, look, what's done is done. You know, and, and so don't forget me next time because I can help you. You know, and again, when I first bought the Mavericks, it was the exact same thing. Now, with the Mavericks, I would yell sometimes because I had to stand up for my players and, you know, send a message that I had my players back. And it costs you. Yeah, it would cost me a lot, right? <laughs> but at the same time, again, reporters, opinion writers, authors, they all want content and they all need content. That's their lifeblood. And, you know, I was content and I knew how to be content. And I'd recommend that to any CEO. You know, I think a lot of CEOs just pitch it off to a PR person and say that PR person is just going to take care of it. But the reality is what happens in that process is that PR person, unless they already know your business for some reason, you have to explain everything to them. And then that PR person still doesn't know a quarter of as much about this as you do, nor the applications of particularly your technology as you do. And so every time they bring in a potential opportunity, you know, you still have to go through that whole explanation as if you would cold call them yourself, you know? And so, you know, it's not to say that PR people don't have any value. There's certain times when they have access to reporters or something that maybe people that don't return your emails or cold emails or calls. But I think more often than not, you know, even when nobody knew who I was, if I emailed somebody and just said, hey, I, I can help you, they at least will return the email. Well said. I remember reading the Steve Jobs biography and uh, that Jobs would get on the phone with Walt Mossberg every Sunday for two hours to talk to him yeah. at a time when the company was in crisis and he probably had a million other things to do. That's exactly right. I mean, Kara Swisher and I have known each other for decades and doing these shows. I mean, I went to CES every single year and I would just walk around because I needed, I was of no value to a reporter if I didn't have a good grasp of what was going on in the industry. Because the minute they knew something that I didn't know, that's what would freak me out more than anything, right? Because it was like, you know, why don't I know this? What did I do to not keep up? And to me, that was, you know, more stressful than a lot of the other stuff. Yeah, I can imagine. Let's just finish off the broadcast story. So how many employees did it get to? 330 some, I think, give or take. Was there ever a moment like you'd previously managed only under 100 people where were you like, oh my God, how do I run this whole thing? Or should I bring in a pro CEO? Or were you just kind of on fire? No, I never thought about pro CEO. Yeah, I was just going to go and learn. But again, I had Todd to help me. And Todd, you know, where again, I'm the amped up, passion, excitement guy. 
Todd was a lot more mellow and constrained and controlled. And that balance really, you know, helped us out. And we brought in Belinda Johnson, who ended up being one of the COOs of Airbnb. And we hired a lot of really, really good people over time that really helped us manage. And we didn't make a lot of big mistakes. And I think we learned early on that, you know, you hire slow and fire fast. And so when we made a mistake, we kind of cut it out early. Now, tell me what it was like to sell your second business. No, that was huge. That was different. When that happened and it closed, it was just... How do you know it was the right time to sell? When someone offers you $5.7 billion, it's always the right time to sell. I'm going to make a note of that. You know, if you go back to why I sold micro solutions, time, opportunity, you know, the things you can do with your time, there's just the opportunities that created for me just to experience life. You know, I loved my job and loved what I was doing. And I loved, you know, the impact we had on the industry, but everything else was everything else. You know, walk me through like, so Yahoo says, okay, well, we'll give you 5.7 billion. But remember, it's in stock. And at that point in time, the internet stock market was sky high. And so Yahoo stock was just as overvalued as everybody else. And so it wasn't paying in cash. It was literally paying in stock. So we had the risk of that stock going down because, you know, if the internet bubble had burst any earlier, it would have been a whole different story. But the best part of the story is, for Todd and I in particular, and a lot of the employees, because we try to tell everybody, don't be greedy. You know, a lot of people were saying, well, it's never going to end, right? And I'm like, look, I traded stocks in the 90s. I can tell you story after story of companies whose stocks went straight up and then came straight down. Companies you've never heard of any longer. You know, here's what I'm going to do. I'm working with Goldman Sachs to put on a collar where we sell calls and buy puts. And before I do that, I'm shorting this internet index which by law couldn't have more than 5% of Yahoo stock. And I put 20 some million dollars, I forget the exact number, in a short on that index, hoping I would lose every penny of it because that meant that I could collar my stock because I wasn't allowed to do that for six months. And when I lost all that money and put on the collar, three months later, whatever it was, the internet stock market, the bubble burst. And I ended up making even more money because of the collar and because the volatility increased the value of the calls. And so it just pays not to be greedy. And, <laughs> but it really, that got called one of the top 10 trades ever in the history of Wall Street. So it's not just a matter of selling the company. It's kind of how you manage the risk. And well, when you're selling for stock, yeah, when you're selling for stock, you know, there's always that risk because there were a whole lot of paper billionaires that, you know, have stock certificates that aren't worth anything now. And there's a long list of companies like that. What was it like once you did start to get your liquidity off that stock? How did your life change again? It was crazy. You know, I, this house I'm in right now, it's been 20 years, but I bought it sight unseen. My old partner from Microsolutions said, this guy had a public company, spent three years and eight months building a 25,000 square foot house almost. And he had to sell it because he never sold a share of stock and his stock crashed. And so he needs to get out fast. He spent 25 million. You can buy it for 12.5, but you have to write the check tomorrow. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Literally never had seen the house, saw pictures of it, right? But never had been there, didn't go through anything, just wrote the check and bam, still live in this house 21 years later. And it just dumb shit like that, you know, <laughs> bought a plane online because, hey, I'm an online guy. Why wouldn't I? And to me, that was the one thing I wanted to purchase was a plane. Because again, if time's your most valuable asset you don't own, that's what buys you so much time. And so I did. And, you know, that was, a, to me, a smart purchase. But other than that, I didn't really go crazy until I bought the Mavs. 
And how'd that happen? I was a season ticket holder and it was the start of the 99, 2000 season. And I was sitting there going, you know what? There's nobody in the stands. You know, it's the first game of the year. Nobody's excited. I could do a better job than this. And this is like November 1st of 1999. We hadn't closed the deal yet, but we announced the sale to Yahoo. I'm like, I can do a better job than this. And I connected with a guy named Mark McGuire, former Maverick, who connected me to the then owner, Ross Perot, and talked for a little bit. It's going to be $285 million. I think he expected me to negotiate. I just said yes, because in my mind, I didn't have the collar on yet, but the internet stock market was still going nuts. And in one day, Yahoo stock would go up enough to pay for the Mavericks. You know, it was bizarre. It was crazy. And so I was like, sure, why not? And so I bought the team for $285 million. And I forget the exact, it closed in January of 2000. January 4th is when it closed. So how big is your organization now when you add up all the companies you own? Like how many people work for you in Mark Cuban companies? Three, 4,000, I think, between three and 4,000. A lot of those are the American Airlines Center. You know, that just inherently has a lot of employees. And the Mavericks are the, the two biggest organizations. You know, I have a CEO for the Mavericks, a CEO for the American Airlines Center, so I don't really have to, you know, do a lot of day-to-day CEO operational type stuff anymore. You know, that's helped me and hurt me in some cases, but that's not my focus right now. My kids are now 11, 14, and 17, a little boy and two girls, and that's just more of a primary focus for me. I'm just fascinated by how you live your life because so many people, they get to your level of success, they, you know, have a bureaucracy under them, and they get busy, and they run this big organization, whereas... As long as I've known you, you respond to every email in an hour. I don't even respond to emails in the hour, in an hour, and a lot less people care about me. How do you respond to emails so quickly? And how- because I do everything by email. I rarely do these things. I mean, now there's more Zoom stuff going on, obviously, but I'm not a big meeting. You know, in regular days, I'm not a big meeting or phone call guy. And so if I do everything by email, I literally have email on and in front of me all the time because that's like most people checking their texts or checking to see, you know, when the phone rings or whatever. It's just there. And it becomes my tickler file. So if you email me, if I don't respond right away, it's just going to be sitting there staring me in the face of my inbox. (laughs) And so as long as I'm sitting here like this doing email, I might as well get rid of it. So are you a zero inbox guy? Like you? uh... Depends how busy I am. But, you know, 40 is my limit. If I'm above 40, I feel like I'm behind for my unreads, right? So I'll get hundreds in a day. But if I go to bed and there's more than 40, then, you know, I, I know I got my work cut out for me the next day. I feel like having that small of inbox is even more rare than making a billion dollars. Like I talked to- <laughs> Well, that's just my unreads. The inbox is like, I got hacked in 2012 or 13. And so I had to go through and clear out a lot of shit. And I went from like 1.2 million emails in my Gmail to like 750,000 in my Gmail. I mean, and back then, remember, in the early days of Gmail, it was so slow if you had that many emails. I had to have like Mark Cuban one, Mark Cuban two, and I would like forward from one account to the next account. And my Mark Cuban two account was the one that got hacked. And just even then when, when it was a high hassle factor, it was still something that I kind of used to run my life. And the real reason is not because, I mean, part of it's direct efficiency because it going to that zero inbox, you know, makes me feel better that I get things done. But I have such a bad memory when it comes to some things that by doing it via email, I can, everything's searchable. You know, muckrack. Oh, yeah, here's the 15 email conversations I had. Because if you would just ask me, what did we talk about, you know, in a phone call, I'd have no idea or I'd have to take notes on everything like I used to back in the day. 
And, you know, I still have these old notebooks of meetings and conversations I took notes for, and I didn't want to be in that position. I know you you fill your email, your inbox up even more with the muckrack alerts. Like, I love it. Why do you want to know when whatever you're mentioning in an article or by a journalist on Twitter and all that? Well, I don't typically get to the journalists on Twitter because I have so many mentions most of the time, so I don't <laughs> go to the whole view message. But, you know, it, you just never know. It's not because of the volume items. It's because of the exceptional items, the anecdotal items that you don't know about or don't expect will you get mentioned. That's why. Or if somebody just says something that's just wrong and it's impactful, 99% of the time, I don't care if somebody talks shit or lies or whatever. But if it's somebody that's in a position of, of influence or, you know, is just has something that's misrepresented that I don't want to see out there forever, you know, Muckrack gives me the opportunity to know that it's being said. And look, I have Google alerts, you know, but you guys cover a lot of different things are a lot more timely and you don't have the duplication that they do. And so it's just a lot more efficient to use Muckrack. I'm glad it's helpful. It. Oh, it very much is. I look, you know, I see it, right? Because I've got a couple different alert type thing and I see Muckrack coming in, Muckrack coverage, right? And there it is. And so I always check it out. That goes right to the right to the front. And are you still cold emailing journalists when you're like, oh man. They're... If I have to, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a lot easier now, right? Because people are going to, I just have to say from Mark Cuban, which is weird in and of itself. You know, back in the day, it was like the subject is regarding, you know, da, 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 right? I have some information you may be interested in. And then they'll go and I'll explain who I am. Now I just have to say from Mark Cuban, which sounds really arrogant, and really pissy and really belligerent in a lot of ways, <laughs> but um, is what it is. But yeah, I'm typically going to get a response or I can use DM and social media if we follow each other. And let's talk about uh, just your investing style. I know pre-Shark Tank, I've talked to many entrepreneurs, well, not many, but a handful of entrepreneurs who raised money from you. And some of them were like, I've never met Mark. I just sent him an email. And I responded, yeah. Yeah. And, and you'll do the whole deal just over email, right? You don't, you're not like, well, let's get on a call before we close this. Yeah, I don't do that as much anymore because I try to make work for people. So I let them do full due diligence. But at the beginning, for sure, you know, I did so many of those. I made more money from those deals than I did from the ones I did all the diligence on. But yeah, that's exactly how I worked. It was like, okay, this is the theme I like. They're answering my questions in the right manner. And if they can answer these questions and they're responsive and they understand the industry the way I need them to, and I think they can handle it, then fine. You know, now you just have to hit my valuation, whether it's now, you know, I was Shark Tank before Shark Tank was cool. And so if they did, then I would make that investment. And I literally probably invested, I don't know, $100 million over 10 years that way. Wow. And I know so many people who are investors like, oh, I got to meet the entrepreneur and get a sense for their character and this and that. Did you ever feel like it was irresponsible not to meet them before wiring the money? Yeah, but it depends on how much money was involved. Uh, typically, These typically weren't multi-million dollar investments. These were typically a hundred dollars or $250,000, excuse me, maybe a half a million dollars. And so for the half a million dollar ones, maybe I'd get on the phone with them or email them more. But I'd gotten to the, the point where I could tell by how they respond. Right. And look, there's probably two companies I got ripped off on, right, where I should have done more due diligence and didn't, but out of hundreds over the years, you know, and um, I've done okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're not, uh, not how to put the watch back on. No, not at all. For the people who are watching you on Shark Tank, like, what do you think are the elements of raising money on Shark Tank that are universal? And which are the, the pieces of it that are, you know, great entertainment, but might not come into play? I think it's the same in all cases. I think the only difference probably between Shark Tank and working with VCs or seed are the valuations, because in Shark Tank, the valuations are probably going to be a little bit lower 
because we're dealing with a wide range of companies. Whereas when you're dealing with seed companies and or seed investors and angels and VCs, they're looking for bigger payouts and scores. You're not going to get a whole lot of $75,000 deals to a VC. So that's the primary difference. But otherwise, you know, I look for the same things. You know, I want the same results. I want entrepreneurs that are learners, salespeople, love what they're doing, have a vision, have differentiation. And if we're really lucky, it's an idea that makes me think, why didn't I think of that, right? Those are always the best. It's like, damn, I wish I had thought of that. And then you ask yourself, can this person pull it off? And, you know, we get to do due diligence after the fact. And now with Shark Tank companies, I do because, you know, at least with the emails, when I get email inquiries, I can pepper them right off the bat and qualify them in a lot of ways. Whereas on Shark Tank, we just see the 10 minute pitch, you know, or however long it goes. If I just had to live off of that, then it'd be dangerous because they could lie their asses off. (laughs) You've already been outspoken on your feelings on this election, but I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the next presidential election. And are you thinking about the next presidential election? And and also, you know, Bloomberg was ran for mayor of New York, like thinking about governor, senator, like what do you feel yourself doing public service in that way? Not in that way. No. I mean, look, the only reason I considered presidency was because of Donald Trump. If we lived in a normal world, you know, running for office is never one of my dream goals or something I always envision myself doing. I was pretty much apolitical until Donald Trump got the nomination. I, I don't have any interest in dealing with politicians. I don't like dealing with politicians. I think it's slimy in, in half the cases. But now that I have kids, the only reason I, I even did anything in the 2016 election since then is you know, in talking to my wife, it's like, if I didn't, I'd feel bad. You know, what would I tell our kids? You know, dad, you had a platform. Why didn't you speak out and say something if you were so fervently against this or that? And so that that was my motivation. And as they're older and hopefully things normalize to some point, there won't be any need for me. So you'll continue a private citizen and uh, not have to look at the time. Exactly. Well, Mark, I know, uh, you know, the whole theme of this was time's your most valuable asset. So I really appreciate you. Uh, you give me some of your time. I appreciate it. It was fun. I really enjoyed it. You did a great job. Uh, same here. It's won- wonderful having you on. And keep up the good work with Muckrack. You guys are awesome. You know, anybody watching, I encourage you to subscribe. It's a really valuable tool that makes me a lot smarter every morning. Uh, thanks so much. That, that means a lot. And it mean, means a lot to us that uh, people are getting value out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Great job, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Greg. A few years ago, I was at the Getty Villa in Malibu, admiring an amazing collection of Greek artwork and statues. On the way out, I went through the gift shop, and I saw there was an autobiography by J. Paul Getty. I really knew nothing of him beyond the fact that he's the guy who started Getty Oil. So I was curious, as you can imagine from listening to this podcast, what makes an entrepreneur tick. I bought his book. In it, I find out at the time he was probably the richest man in the world. And yet he wrote, he kind of closes out his book lamenting, quote, rich as I may be from a material standpoint, I've long felt that I'm very poor indeed in time. He even had a cousin he would try to offer opportunities to, and his cousin would turn him down, get his cousin didn't have much money, but lots of free time, would spend time fishing, and his cousin would write him letters. And his cousin would tease Getty, saying, to the richest man in the world, from the wealthiest. As an entrepreneur, that can be a bit haunting to think that you can make billions and still be time poor. What really struck me talking to Mark is that as an entrepreneur, if you're fortunate, 
you can control your life. In his case, you can choose to eliminate meetings, take your watch off. And I think it was really telling that what really changed Mark's life wasn't becoming a billionaire. It was selling his first business for $2 million. Of course, $2 million was worth more back then than now, but I think all of us entrepreneurs have something to take away from it that it might not take as much as we think to have some freedom. And even for anybody now, even people with far fewer resources, I think it's a good challenge to think, are there small changes you can make in your life to get more control over your time and do what you want? Of course, I was also struck by how even as a billionaire, PR really matters, and it's something CEOs do themselves. It really struck me, too, when I read Steve Jobs' biography that when he came back to Apple, Steve Jobs was personally calling Walt Mossberg, the Wall Street Journal tech columnist at the time, to tell him about his vision for the company. So, you know, PR is you want to have an awesome PR team or PR firm, but it's always the CEO's job. Like I mentioned at the top, this is my first new podcast in over a decade. That's got to be a Guinness Book of World Record or something, the longest hiatus from a podcast. But it's great to be back. Help me spread the word about this. Leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. I just got a new review from Anthropo uh, on iTunes who wrote, Love this podcast. Devoured each and every episode. I'm a huge fan of the Venture Voice podcast. This is probably the first podcast I ever really got into back when Greg started. It's an incredible, long-form, deep insight into so many entrepreneurs. Thank you, Anthropo, and I look forward to reading other reviews. This relaunch uh, took a lot of work. It takes a surprising amount of work to get a podcast back online. I had to bust into an old content management system and... uh, it was originally a movable type, which doesn't even exist anymore for any uh, web content management historians out there. And then tough to teach an old dog new trick. I had to learn all the latest. So it took quite a few people to make this come together. First, I'd like to thank Jason Sanderson from Podcast Tech, who helped me with the audio production. Marla Lepore, who helped me write a lot of the copy that goes along with this podcast. And by the way, if you haven't already go to venturevoice.substack.com to subscribe to the newsletter. I'd also like to thank Lee Semmel, my business partner and CTO in Muckrack and the Shorty Awards, who encouraged me to bring this podcast back to you all. We've worked together now for over a decade, but I actually first met Lee in part because he was a listener to this show, and that, uh, that created a partnership that has lasted a long time and now is the foundation for our businesses, which employ about 100 people. You never know where making a podcast or listening to a podcast will take you. And thanks to Hebe Sites, who helped me move the website to a new platform. And most of all, thanks to my whole team, to all of you for listening. I'm really excited to be back in the podcasting world and can't wait to connect with you for the next one. In the meantime, you can always find me on social media. I'm simply at Gregory. I signed up early, just at Gregory on Twitter and Instagram. Hit me up there and see you next time. Bye-bye.